are still those out there who say that cancel culture does not exist. But it's about to get a whole lot harder to make that argument publicly. My guest on today's program has a new book out that provides irrefutable evidence that it is a serious phenomenon that cancel culture is now a common tactic on the right and the left, that it is a threat to individuals and institutions, and that it is ultimately undermining trust. But my guest today says there is a solution. Greg Lukianoff is the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. He's also the co-author of the canceling of the American mind. Greg Lukianoff is my guest today on Lean Out. Greg, welcome back to Lean Out. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. Great to speak with you again. And uh, I just really enjoyed this book. And I I think it's going to make for a wonderful conversation today. Let's start by briefly outlining the problem for our listeners. How do you and your co-author, Ricky Schlott, define cancel culture? And and what are the numbers here? How prevalent is this problem? Sure. Okay. So um, we're really trying to make an argument that cancel culture is sort of a historical period. I'm a First Amendment lawyer. I'm big on the history of freedom of speech. And the various kind of moments of mass censorship tend to have names. So like the Red Scare, Red Scare 1, 2, McCarthyism, which is generally 2, et cetera, Victorian era. Um, So we're making the argument that essentially we should think of this as, you know, the era of cancel culture. And for those of us who worked on campus, it was really clear around 2014 that something major had changed. Previously, students had been incredible on freedom of speech, and then suddenly they were demanding deplatforming and uh, new speech codes. And by 2017, they were demanding professors be fired. So with regards to the data, and to be clear, that wasn't normal before. (laughs) I've been doing this for 22 years. That was unusual because, yes, uh, students uh, disagreed with professors all the time, would ask hard questions, write editorials about why they thought the professor was wrong, protest. But it wasn't extra step to demand that that professor be fired for speech. That was very rare um, in my experience. So with regards to the numbers. So let, let's take when I started at FIRE. Uh, I landed at 9, 10 a.m. on 9-11 to find an apartment in Philadelphia for my job at FIRE. <laughs> so pretty pretty crazy beginning. It was definitely a moment where there was you know mass hysteria and backlash to people saying both insensitive things about the attacks, but also professors sometimes getting in trouble for saying we should really get those terrorists. Um, and we saw about 17 attempts to get professors punished back then. Three professors were fired, but all three of those you could really justify. One was academic misconduct. The other one was actual ties to terrorism. The other one was something that you could legitimately punish somebody for. So, And that was bad. That was an unusually bad couple of years for academic freedom. Cancel culture, we're now talking about a thousand attempts to get professors fired. We're talking about two-thirds of those are punished uh, in some way. About one-fifth, about 200 were fired. I think something like 40 of them, maybe even more, 44, tenured professors, which was unheard of before I started. And we know that this is just a tiny drop in the bucket that we're able to see, because a lot of what happens on campus happens without any public attention whatsoever. So to get a sense of that, we did a poll of professors. One in six. One in six, this one blew me away too after doing this 22 years, said they had been either investigated or threatened with investigation for things related to free speech or academic freedom. That means speaking speaking what's called extramurally, your research, your pedagogy. 
we just did a, a completed a survey where about 10% of students said the same thing. One third of professors said that they've been encouraged by their colleagues and by administrators not to touch on controversial topics. So it's been the worst period I've seen in 22 years. I can't find a period since McCarthyism where, where you're looking at these kind of numbers. So I find it somewhat frustrating to have to continue to argue that this is happening at all. When I think all of us saw it with our own eyes, just turns out the numbers are even worse than most people thought. And I, I want to try to unpack some of the attitudes behind this and where they come from. So for, for much of the U.S.'s almost 250-year history, it has been distinguished as a free speech nation. And your own polls show that Americans today value freedom of speech above all other freedoms, placing it above the right to vote, the right to bear arms, and even freedom of religion. So how exactly did we get to a moment where freedom of speech is viewed with skepticism and even suspicion by many in academia, the media, and education? Well, the first thing about those numbers is, and it's something I remember someone bringing this to my attention, very, very, very smart professor, maybe 15 years ago, and saying, actually, there's encouraging news. When you ask students how they feel about freedom of speech, they all say they love it, you know, and they all think it's great. Same thing with professors. And it's like, yes, that's what... Comstock thought, like the great Victorian censor, he would literally open up before he arrested people for indecency. You know, I love freedom of speech. Everybody thinks they do. When, when you poll extremely regressive parts of the world, they say they like freedom of speech. It really gets much more troubling as you dig into it, when you actually ask kind of like, well, what about this situation, which is clearly free speech and like, oh, no, de definitely not there. So where did this come from? Really, to a degree, I mean, I call my Substack, the eternally radical idea, which is a reference to freedom of speech, because free speech is always a radical idea in every generation. And in every generation, people rise up to demand that people they don't like get censored. And they're usually on the winning side. Um, the, the side saying free speech is usually on the losing side. So we've just come from an unusually, and this I can say this, you know, at least in the free world, globally, uh, high watermark of appreciation for the value of freedom of speech. And to some degree, we're regressing more to the historical mean, where it's, it, it's much more skeptical. So th there's some of that, that essentially having the strong of a belief um, in freedom of speech was hard to, what was historically unusual in the first place. And I feel very lucky to have grown up in, a, in an environment where certainly being, you know, a Democrat, that, that it was taken for granted that one of your key beliefs was a, a, an unwavering commitment to freedom of opinion, for example, to, to make it very clear. Why specifically on campus, though, is another question. And while I, you know, with my co-author, Jonathan Haidt, for my freest book, Coddling the American Mind, you know, you always want to give sort of a social science argument that sort of lets people off the hook to a degree that this was just natural forces. It was kind of unintentional. And that's true as well, that that, that essentially universities got much more politically homogenous. They, they moved much more, you know, for, from a majority on the left to a super, super majority on the left, both among professors and administrators. And when you don't have enough viewpoint diversity, it's very typical social science situation is people tend to get more radicalized, more group thinky, all, all this kind of stuff. But we shouldn't eliminate the fact that there was a very conscious movement since about 1965, one year after the free speech movement started, to actually try to turn free speech into no longer uh, a sacred cow on the left. And this started with people like Herbert Marcuse, but it continued to be promoted by the founders of critical race theory, which has been treated like a boogeyman, but it, it's one thing that should be 
people should know is that the founders of critical race theory, one of the first things they did was advocate campus speech codes. Um, and this was a an article originally, I think 1980 called words that wound that later became a book called word words that wound in the nineties, which included everybody. It was Richard Delgado, Mary Matsuda, Kimberly Contra, et cetera. So, so there has been an effort to sort of change the attitude about freedom of speech on campus for some time. And when I got to, I, I went to a kind of non-elite college, but then I went to Stanford for law school. And I was kind of shocked at how much free speech had already been kind of got an eye roll almost. And I worked at the ACLU of Northern California. Um, you know, I took every class that my school offered on, on First Amendment. And already you could see that there was this, you know, free speech was already taking a backseat, at least in kind of like elite left circles. And unfortunately, I've watched this progress. And particularly if this is kind of, it's actually really easy to teach people to be free speech skeptical. It, it comes very naturally to us um, that essentially, well, there's bad ideas and bad ideas shouldn't, people shouldn't say bad things. You know, that that, that makes instinctual sense to, to, to the very core of, of every human being. But a lot of what's actually good for society and certainly good for the production of knowledge does not make immediate intuitive sense. And I have to kind of reframe it to people sometimes to be kind of like, no, protecting free speech does not mean all opinions are good. That would be a nonsensical argument. It wouldn't make a lick of sense. However, is it important to know what people really think in a democracy? Of course it is. As a social scientist, of course it is. Just to know uh, to know the world as it is, you cannot know what the world really looks like without having an environment in which people can actually say what they think. And I think that there's a, I think that the justification for censorship oftentimes comes from this, not really thinking the whole thing through, that essentially, do you really believe you are safer for not knowing that say, you know, your uncle, I always give this example, thinks that lizard people control the, the world. Lizard people living in the Dunder Airport control the world. Is he right? I can say pretty definitely he's not right. <laughs> Is it valuable information to know? Yes. Is it really, really valuable information to know that, that if, say, 10% of the country actually thinks that? Of course it is. So I, I think that we it's really easy to battle free speech based on sort of emotional responses to offensive speech. But reminding people that actually that knowledge is really important to understand the world as it is, is something that I'm constantly trying to do. I want to spend a moment on the elite institutions and the role yes. they play on this. I mean, last week on Bill Maher's show, he railed against elite universities and said that if ignorance is a disease, Harvard Yard is the Wuhan wet market. Um, <laughs> you quote a 2022 poll that showed the percentage of people who believe colleges and universities had a positive impact on society has dropped 14 yep. points in two years. 73% of Democrats, 37% of Republicans now think that universities are a force for good. Do you think we will reach a point in the near future where a significant portion of the public neither values nor fully trusts our universities? Yes, I, I, I think that, and that's kind of the subtle harm of cancel culture that we talk about in the book that really can't be appreciated enough. And I always give the example of Carol Hooven at Harvard. Carol Hooven is brilliant, um, thoughtful, and she wrote a book called Testosterone. Um, she's an evolutionary biologist. Uh, she, she studied you know, primate biology in Africa and made the argument while promoting her book that we should be kind to trans people, we should use their pronouns, we should be understanding and compassionate, but biological sex is real and we can't pretend that it's not. Um, this is an argument that if you told me would be controversial 15 years ago, I would have been like, sure, that, that's 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 crazy thinking. A DEI administrator at Harvard 
started you know, sounding the alarm about like how offensive this was. And students, you know, the typical thing happens is students start a petition, friends abandon her, won't defend her in public. Um, the, all of the cancel culture nastiness, so bad that she actually admitted in the book that the first time she started getting suicidal ideation in her whole life, which is hard to imagine if you know Carol, because she's a very confident person. And she voluntarily withdrew from Harvard, came back to work for Steve Pinker for a little bit, and now has since left because uh, it was just too you know, hostile of an environment. Now, what does that do to trust and expertise on this topic? It basically means that if someone comes out and says that in, in those sort of new opinion is that biological sex is not, in fact, real and it's much more complicated than that, et cetera. Why is anybody going to trust that? Because they're going to look at that and go, wait a second. So I remember even a Harvard professor getting forced out for having the wrong opinion on this. Even if this is what you genuinely believe, how can I know that? And that's just if it happens once. When you're talking about, you know, a thousand different examples of this happening to professors, it's utterly devastating to trust in expertise, trust in authority, and trust in institutions. And I think that, uh, so I was funny, like when I saw the, the, the decline in trust in higher ed, there were a couple of people saying, oh, this is just due to a like a right-wing conspiracy against higher ed. And I'm like, I've been doing this for 22 years. Your head is in the sand if you think they've done nothing to actually undermine their own credibility. I mean, even just by being places that overwhelmingly cater to the rich was enough to make people angry, even just putting people in ever greater debt so that um, they can hire ever more administrators was enough to blow credibility. But now you're actually getting to the stuff that, that makes reasonable people go, but why should I trust you to be objective on any of these hot button issues and have a point? We should also touch on the media, something I cover quite extensively on yeah. this podcast. You write in the book that the media went from being an intermediary to a kind of parent of the public. Walk me through your thinking on that. Yeah, I mean, I, a lot of First Amendment people come from a, a, a journalism background. I was a student journalist. And that was one of the things that really got me to understand that the protections of free speech have to be very broad because people are endlessly creative in ways that will justify censorship. The way they'll say, you have to get rid of that reporter, you have to withdraw that article, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of us, from Floyd Abrams, Nadine Strawson, you know, like we are former journalists and take journalism incredibly seriously. A lot of us, you know, used to work for the Student Press Law Center at my organization, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. So a lot of us, you know, come from that. And we were utterly horrified to talk to some young journalism school people, you know, a while ago and hear basically like the goal of is not just to report the world as it is, but to change it. And it's like, no, 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 no. The role of explaining the world as it is, is more than complicated enough. You can't possibly. And then, of course, people make arguments against, well, objectivity isn't possible. And it's like, well, that's cute. And that's a philosophically you know, defensible opinion. But striving towards objectivity <laughs> is possible. You won't fully get there. But just like with truth, you'll never fully get there. You can do better if you actually don't think your job is to coax the wayward public towards the right opinion. And unfortunately, I think there are an awful lot of people, and people will even defend this publicly, where the job of the journalist is to produce positive social change. And to be frank, it's an incredibly arrogant position for any person to take, let alone someone who's there to try to explain the world to you as it is. Now, how do I, why do I think, and here's where, where the Marxist in me comes out. Um, why do I think it's gotten to, to a point of this level of epistemic arrogance among uh, not all, but many journalists? Batya Ungar-Sargon, um, who's a friend, and I apologize, Batya, for butchering your name. She thinks actually it's a class shift in the profession of journalism, that journalists used to be 
middle class, relatively low status people who who really thought their job was just to report the facts. Whereas not not all of them, of course, but 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 certainly at the high watermark of of objectivity, there was a sense that this was a higher calling. And she thinks that the fact that elite higher education that that increasingly for the for the fancy jobs for the New York Times for all of the cable news, you're expected to have a very expensive degree from a very expensive school, um, and you're supposed to be able to live on a tiny amount of money in some of the most expensive cities in the world. So who does that attract? It attracts highly educated rich kids, the kind of you know students who are educated. Um, in higher ed, in elite higher ed, but particularly the ones who are wealthy enough to have forego the big salaries, um, who, who can you know get floated and supported. And I think this class shift has led to a situation where our media reflects some of the blind spots of upper class America at the moment. And I think that's a major problem. It would be less of a problem if they were like, this is a fact that makes me uncomfortable, um, you know, due to my political beliefs, and I'm reporting it anyway, because that's my job. Whereas increasingly, I'm like, well, maybe we should get a different assignment. Maybe, maybe we should cover a different story. Maybe we should put our emphasis somewhere else that makes us more comfortable. That makes the problem much harder to fix because like the next podcast I'm going on is someone who basically is like, I just don't believe this is happening at all. And it's like, yeah, I understand that that's possible. Like if, you, uh, if you're not paying much attention to it and you're trusting a limited number of sources, you can miss that this is a real problem. Now, of course, even the New York Times came out with, with an article saying cancel culture is real about a year and a half ago, but people should remember that in response to that elite journalists, including people like Keith Oberman, you know, came out and and blasted uh, the New York Times for how dare you admit this obviously true thing, according to to polling is actually happening. And that issue of of cancel culture is not real. That argument, I just find so utterly unconvincing. But when I look at the arguments that are made against yourself, uh, Ricky Schlott, people like me who also criticize cancel culture, there is an argument that we are fueling an elite panic over this flood of new voices into the public square, that too often free speech is used to protect the powerful, um, which they often define as white or straight or often male, and that those groups are now being held accountable. They're not being canceled. How do we think through that line of thinking? It's a little hard for me to frankly, take it all that seriously, given the institutions that are the most, that have the most cancel culture are the wealthiest institutions in the country. It is wildly disproportionately true at Harvard and Georgetown, Princeton, not Princeton less so, uh, University of Pennsylvania. Just a quick shout out for two schools actually doing a good job um, that are elite colleges in the U.S. University of Virginia is doing a good job. Uh, they, they finished in the top 10, and that's based on you know, polling, of including of all their students. Uh, University of Chicago does a good job. But outside of that, where cancel culture is the most prevalent, are places that wildly disproportionately educate wealthy kids. I mean, I think the stat is something like elite colleges educate more from the 1% than from the bottom 50 or even 60, depending on the school, uh, on the socioeconomic status. Uh, and also, it it pretends that this is really coming just from students themselves and just from young people. The reason why this is so effective on campus is because you're not noticing that the, you know, the small number of, you know, campus Republicans who get mad at stuff aren't taking over the president's office. They might if they had administrative support or support from some administrators to do that. But in this case, administrators who can be highly ideological, often, frankly, DEI administrators, they're much more sympathetic to some students' opinion rather than others. 
And for example, at Stanford, my, my alma mater, when they did the shutdown of Fifth Circuit judge, which I really have to stress because that's one level below the Supreme Court, like, like a Fifth Circuit judge is a big deal. When they did that shutdown, the uh, a handful of administrators were talking with those protesters for hours before it. They then do a shutdown. An administrator gets up, reads a pre-prepared seven-minute speech about, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze, making the argument that maybe free speech really isn't worth it. And having this Fifth Circuit judge here, you know, it's, it's not worth the pain he's causing future lawyers, which is like, yeah, you might actually have to argue in front of this guy, people. And that was one of the best showing of the hand that essentially there's this sort of collaboration. And the idea that sort of elite college students are the representatives of the powerless strikes me as silly. Um, the, and the idea that these administrators are, again, these are these are oftentimes extremely highly paid people at some of the most elite colleges in the country. So I think that it's, I tend to think of it, frankly, more as a, as a deflection to not actually investigate the cases, which is why in the book, we talk about cancel culture as being just the most extreme way we try to win arguments without winning arguments. And let's let's talk about that now, the rhetorical fortresses, because this yes. is, I think, one of the most useful things about this book is having a framework for understanding how this works. So the goal is not really to win the argument, but to shut it down, to run down the clock. On the left, which you call the perfect rhetorical fortress, this involves things like discounting anything said by conservatives or men or white people or straight people. But it also involves a lot of ad hominem attacks, things like accusations of racism, transphobia, also guilt by association, emotional blackmail, insinuations of hidden dark motives. I've come up against this stuff myself. So it was very, very satisfying to see it laid out like this. Walk me through how the, all of this works together in concert during a cancellation attempt from the left. Sure. Well, uh, that, that, that's a great question. And I do want to, it, your listeners to be clear, we take on the right and the left in the book. We call the one on the right the efficient rhetorical fortress because it's simple, but it gets rid of most of the people you need to listen to. And we do talk about the the um, lousy rhetorical techniques that can run out the clock that both sides do. And we call those the obstacle course in the minefield. But the perfect rhetorical fortress, in part because it grew up on campus, you know, it just has layer after layer. And I know that like listeners might hear when when you're dismissing people on the basis of race, et cetera, gender identity, et cetera, that that, that might be a legitimate way to argue. But here's, here's a trick. First of all, it gets you down to 0.9% of the population if you follow it down the demographic funnel. It gets you down to basically nobody if you consider the fact that if you uh, if it's about not really someone being conservative, but just being able to be labeled conservative, it, you can kind of do that to anybody. And that's one of the reasons why you end up with a very weird situation of the New York Times and the ACLU being called conservative in the last year because it, it was it worked for everybody else. Why not, why not them? But here's the trick is when you get down to that 0.9% and you still have the wrong opinion, the vitriol against you can be even more ferocious. Um, and then you get told that you have internalized misogyny, you have internalized racism, you have internalized transphobia. Um, and we, we quote different thinkers in, in every one of these stages to point out, yeah, this really does happen. And you've probably seen it with your own eyes. We talked to Coleman Hughes. We talked to every Black conservative independent and moderate we talked to said that they've been told that they're not really black for an opinion they have, usually by white people, by the way. And that kind of shows how perfect it is. We tried to put this all in context of the, we, that in order to show it all at work, we, we, we went back to the Kyle Duncan case and showed like how many of the arguments were just about identity, were about ad hominem, were about, you know, different ways to dismiss them. But the element that they used 
I don't, I don't want to show admiration for it because it was despicable, but that worked so well in the Duncan case was what we call the don't get angry prong. That essentially, if they anger you enough and you get angry in public, that's suddenly the story. And, th and that's exactly what the San Francisco Chronicle ran with. That's a lot, uh, like a lot of people who I think should know better ran with. And why did Duncan get angry? Well, there were lots of reasons, including, you know, the targeting of the students who invited him, shouting him down, kind of, et cetera. There's plenty of reasons to actually get mad. But right before he spoke, and this is on tape, someone said, I hope your daughters get raped. And it's like, yeah, of course you're going to get angry after that. But that became uh, that became the news. And keep in mind that they wanted this canceled in the first place. Like the initial attempt is it, uh, b before you have a shout down is an attempt to get someone disinvited or deplatformed. And they tried and they failed when they put up posters of all the students who invited them with their faces and names on it, um, which you know, my organization fires like they can do that. We don't think it's necessarily like nice, but they can do that, which makes it kind of funny this past week watching students who are having their names put up in places also saying this is this is horrible for, for saying pro Hamas things. It's like, yeah, no, I don't like it. Um, is it First Amendment protected? Almost certainly, unfortunately, uh, not unfortunately, because like otherwise, like how could you actually like cover the news at all? But at the same time, they would have supported it if they were more uh, more sympathetic to the politics is the thing that you constantly see. So we, we try to run through all the different ways we see this as keeping us from arguing about what is true by trying to chip away at falsity. I, I always have to add that because I always make the point you can't quite get to truth, but you can chip away at things that are false. And instead, we're spending all of this cognitive energy in higher ed, all of this time figuring out ways to not have to listen to each other or address each other uh, or address each other's actual arguments. And here's the thing that we could be doing instead of that, fixing things. We could actually be trying to argue towards truth, figuring out what the world actually looks like, or at least have a better idea of it and propose solutions that could actually be fixed. Instead, we seem to, you know, as I jokingly say, seem to be obsessed with cat videos and cancel culture. I do, I do love cat videos, to be clear. And that would also to make the point that social media plays a huge role in this as well. <laughs> yes, indeed. And and just to reinforce what you said about the right, you report somewhat surprisingly in the book about 40% of professor cancellations that FIRE has recorded since 2014 were initiated by those on the right. So it is a huge problem on the right as well. Um, I want to just spend a moment on the gender dynamics in this. I was struck reading the book by how many of these cancellation attempts were initiated by women. Certainly in my own experience, the nastiest things that have been said about me have been from women. Uh, Megan Dom was recently on this podcast making the case that women are driving cancel culture and that only women can stop it. Does that ring true to you at all? <laughs> Um, I'm really glad to have a female co-author on uh, on the book because we saw some of this data when Height and I were writing Coddling the American Mind and we're like, eh, we're two Gen X dudes, like our, our lift is heavy enough, maybe not emphasize that. But it is true um, that when you look at the stats, there's been a, a stable but getting worse difference, gender difference in appreciation for freedom of speech, for example. Like, And, and I mean in polling, I'm not talking about individual women, I'm talking about like overall. And that seems to be getting worse to some degree. And as universities become more female dominated, the hope is, of course, that you can do a better job of trying to persuade people over to freedom of speech. They're not doing that, though, is the problem. And I'm not seeing a lot of will for universities to do that. I do think that you can't defeat cancel culture without having getting more women on board with it being a problem. That, that That's also just the nature um, of, of our society. Uh, I will say, though, that when it comes to a lot of the worst cases I've seen, 
progressive white men have also been some of the most ferocious cancelers I've seen. Um, not 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 that there aren't people from every background, but um, I, I mean, when it came to privilege analysis, it was years and years before the first time I had someone call me out on my privilege who wasn't a wealthy white male or female. And for a long time, it was men overwhelmingly that where I was getting this. So a lot of this is when people talk about it being elite panic, I'm kind of like, well, in a sense, you're right. But what I mean is the elites are panicking against people's speech right now. And, and this is largely coming um, from elite on down. And I have become sufficiently sort of pessimistic about it that I just really advocate for let's hire, let's make sure that particularly in the US, we hire a lot fewer people from these institutions. I, th I think we, I, I think if if America got more of its, you know, forgive the expression, ruling class from Ohio State University or Indiana State University, we'd be probably a healthier country than we are by getting way too many of our leaders from Harvard. And lastly, Greg, speaking of pessimism, I know that I know that you got depressed writing this book. I've also struggled with depression in the past. These are really heavy topics to take on. And yet we we need people to take them on. And I, I think people avoid them for that reason. It, it is really depressing. How do we navigate that element of the conversation and, and making sure that people are, are involved in this conversation? I think we need a little more public bravery sometimes. I can't tell you how many people, you know, <laughs> fancy people, uh, when I told them I was writing this book, were like, oh, thank God you're writing that. Like, and, and there seemed to be a little bit like, also, thank God you're writing it, not me. Um, I think that having our backs behind scenes doesn't hurt, you know, like, like saying, saying that I think you're right about this. You know, that's a nice little ego boost and, or, or, and it reassures us a little bit. But saying it publicly makes such a difference. And I know there are a ton of people out there who know this is a problem. They're afraid to say so because they don't want to get canceled. They probably don't even want to call it that, you know, which is fine. Call it whatever you want. We called it cancel culture because that's the popularly understood term. And we wanted to keep most Americans in the conversation. But I do think that, you know, first start with standing up for your friends and having your friends back publicly. And then, you know, maybe move to the advanced technique of, you know what, I've never liked this guy's political opinion. I don't want him to lose his job over this opinion. Um, that that seems not the best uh, habits of a, of a free society. Well, Greg, it's a wonderful book, and I appreciate so much you coming on to talk about it today. Thank you so much for having me. Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. And this week's episode is produced by Harrison Lohman. If you value independent journalism, please consider supporting our work by subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.